I'm Kay Firth Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Welcome back to In AI We Trust. This week, we are so fortunate again to have an amazing guest co-host, Kathy Baxter. We miss Kay, but we know she's having fun at Khan and talking about AI and doing some good work there. And in the meantime, Kathy Baxter, Chief AI Principal Architect of Ethical AI at Salesforce and woman extraordinaire, ethical AI bot and person, so far as I can tell. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. I love these. Well, I'm particularly glad that we're going to have this conversation together today because I know it is going to be a great one. I am so looking forward to speaking with Dr. Mitchell today. I think like you, I am a fangirl of her work. I have read so much of her research. I've referenced so much in all of the work that I do. And I think we're all just so incredibly grateful for this groundbreaking work that she has done before you know, AI ethics was, was a field or, or a domain of practice that many of us were talking about. She was doing research to create this this foundation uh, that's that's been laid for all of us, and so just so incredibly excited to talk to her today. Well, I couldn't agree more. So let's not wait a moment longer. Let's do it. Yes. On today's episode, we are delighted to be joined by Dr. Margaret Mitchell, a renowned researcher whose work focuses on machine learning and AI ethics, making it practical, bringing together machine learning, social science, law, and policy. Last fall, Dr. Mitchell joined the artificial intelligence startup Hugging Face, which creates tools that helps companies ensure their algorithms are fair. Hugging Face maintains a repository where people can share and collaborate on AI models, an open source platform that's used by more than 5,000 organizations, including Alphabet, Inc.'s Google, and Microsoft Corporation. We'll look forward to asking her more about that. Previously, Dr. Mitchell was a research scientist at Google where she co-led a team that worked on defining and operationalizing AI practices aligned to human values. And prior to that role, Dr. Mitchell held research positions at Google and Microsoft. She's won numerous awards for her research accomplishments, uh, including being the first woman to win a deep learning competition for image captioning in 2015. She was uh, the lead for Microsoft's Seeing AI product, which won the prestigious Helen Keller Achievement Award, and another tool that I'm very excited for us to talk more about. She was the research lead for Google's Google Cloud's model cards product. Uh, She won the U.S. Secretary of Defense Ash Carter's Tech Spotlight Award in 2020 and really revolutionized AI ethics in bringing these practical, thoughtful applications to light. So thank you, Dr. Mitchell, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me and, and for the really kind intro. It's really nice of you. Well deserved. So let's start off with finding out more about your journey in AI. How did you become interested in machine learning and AI ethics, and how has this interest evolved over time? Yeah, um, so I would say my path to machine learning was via computer science, Um, and uh, that was really because I'm a product of, um, I think it's called Generation Y. So just as I was becoming a teenager, it was starting to become possible to communicate online with other people. So it's like AOL 1.0 was starting to come out, things like that. Um, And I quickly got fascinated by web interfaces and just started teaching myself 
the basics of HTML, JavaScript, those kinds of things. And so I just continued kind of self-teaching computer science, I guess, to myself through um, high school, um, took some classes on it. And then I don't think it was until I was an adult, basically, uh, until I was probably about um, 22 that it occurred to me I could actually be a computer scientist. Um, so then I started uh, studying computer science uh, very seriously. I went and got my master's at the University of Washington in computational linguistics, working with Emily Bender. I worked on and off at a lab, a research lab with Brian Rowark, where we did a lot of work on things like parsing. And then I went and got my PhD in computer science at the University of Aberdeen in um, Scotland, which focuses on natural language generation. So generating language, um, or as my partner says, teaching robots to talk. Then at that point, machine learning was really uh, becoming a useful tool in computer science. And so, you know, I, I picked it up as well uh, along the way, I suppose, and then started working with deep learning models in 2012. And uh, yeah, after that, I would say I was a full on ML scientist, computer scientist. So that's the basic trajectory for machine learning. And then I think you also asked about ethics. And that was once my machines started working, <laughs> once my sort of algorithms and models started working, instead of getting really excited, I found myself getting sort of terrified because you can see glimpses of the future, right? Like as it starts to get things right, um, and in my case, it was describing sequences of images, being able to infer what was happening and say things about it. You start to see what this could look like when it's working perfectly well. And I was seeing that it didn't understand basic things like human morality and was getting confused by what it saw in the data and what was actually happening within an image that was being that was capturing a moment in time. So um, my sort of aha moment, if you could call it that, uh, was around 2014 when I was feeding it images of this massive explosion. Um, and you could see the sky was blue and purple colors uh, from the explosion. And the system thought it was beautiful. And you can understand right? Why you thought it was beautiful. If you think about the images it was trained on, we take pictures of sunsets, things like this, you know, similarities in how the sky would look. Um, but the inability to connect that to the risk of human mortality uh, really, really frightened me and made me realize there's no way it could learn that just from images. It requires some higher level reasoning that we are not working on at all. And we're not prepared to start releasing technology like this without working on this higher level kind of reasoning and things like the values that humans have, such as, uh, you know, not murdering people. Um, and so it was around that time when I started switching over to more ethical AI work and trying to work on these sort of higher level values. The field of AI ethics is, I think, relatively uh, new for many individuals, uh, and especially if we compare it to other fields that we might think of, uh, like safety, food safety, um, 
uh, other kind of safety industries. Um, but as you've been uh, describing to us, you've been a leading computer scientist in this field doing research on these topics for quite a while. Uh, and you mentioned, uh, you said the words ethical AI. What does ethical or responsible AI mean to you? Um, and um, why is this uh, something that we really should be uh, focusing on and putting more resources into? I think the term ethical AI is misunderstood. So I, I appreciate you asking that. Um, I think that uh, naively people tend to think that ethical AI means that you're figuring out the ethical thing to do and doing that. That sort of is disconnected from how ethics tends to work, which is more about what are the different perspectives we can apply to a problem in order to look at the trade-offs, things like benefits and risks. So ethical work doesn't give you the most ethical answer, but rather provides ways of thinking about things um, where you can start thinking about things in terms of different human values. Um, so ethical AI work really focuses on what are the values we have at play in the development of this system? What are the values that are at play relevant to how the system will be used in context? And how do we reach a point in our development that can best address uh, the kinds of values that humans hold um, and, uh, and well meet the kinds of values we want to have in play when this technology is deployed? So ethical AI is really about thinking through ethical perspectives and human values and using that in the work you do. Um, responsible AI, uh, I would say, is different. Um, it's sort of funny when you say, no, it's not ethical AI, it's responsible AI. It's sort of like, oh, what are you leaving out? Why wouldn't you say it's ethical, right? But I mean, since ethical AI is about different perspectives and thinking through values, um, responsible AI is a, another kind of perspective. I would say perhaps a more focused perspective or a more limited perspective, thinking specifically about um, downstream harm to users and ideally the, those affected. I would say that responsible AI work tends to focus a little bit more on users where ethical AI work also includes those affected, uh, perhaps without consent, because it starts to bring in these higher level concepts of consent and things like that. Although that's Maybe others would disagree with me. Kathy, you, you might disagree with me. This is sort of an arbitrary uh, distinction um, that I've sort of created in my head. Um, but responsible AI, you know, definitely looks at the development practices and the deployment practices um, and ideally looks at questions of whether something should be released or not. Although I would say that when I read about framings of responsible AI work, the fact that it will be deployed tends to be a bit of a given, whereas ethical AI work, there's, I think, a little bit more space to say, no, we shouldn't deploy this at all. Uh, and that's part of why my theory is that's part of why you see larger companies talking about responsible AI, right? Because they... Uh, they're supposed to make profit. <laughs> so just not releasing things is sort of not an option or it's not a company, right? So so ethical AI is a bit more, uh, can be a bit more stick in the mud sometimes than I think responsible AI, which tends to sync a little bit more with corporate perspectives 
uh, corporate incentives, but from the from the viewpoint of how do we make this better for people? That's a fascinating comparison that you've made. I've I've been in discussions where like there are really strong feelings about the word um, ethics or ethical. It can actually generate like a visceral response feelings. among yeah. yeah. And so you start Absolutely. getting into the question of whose ethics, whose yeah. values, and yeah. you know, you big tech company, who are you to decide which of the values? Um, you're going to promote and which ones you're you're going to say are not mm-hmm. as as important. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, it, I think it gets into the larger question around terminology uh, and what yeah. we mean. Um, yeah. I, I attended um, a couple of weeks back uh, a, a NIST workshop and I was surprised at this the continued amount of of argument around how do we define even AI? Should we mm-hmm. even be using the word AI? Um, mm-hmm. So terminology and, and, you know, how do we define so fairness? True. What's fair to me is not fair to you. Um, yeah. So it's it's amazing that, that I think, um, although we have spent, there have been years of research that you and others have done in this area, we are still at a place where we yeah. do not have agreement on the most fundamental yeah. terms of yeah. our of our of our practice of our work yeah. and that's that's still surprising to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um and you brought up two things that I think are are pretty fundamental to these discussions. One thing that uh tends not to be noticed that I'm so glad you're noticing is about feelings. And I actually have started beginning discussions on ethical AI by addressing that this isn't sort of work, nine to five kind of work where you can disconnect from it in some way. This touches on personal morality. We're talking about things like sexism and racism in models with people who experience sexism and racism every day. That's not something they can leave at work. Um, And so it's really important to realize that when you're talking about ethical AI work, that this is very personal, that people are going to be communicating perspectives where they very much feel they are right Um, because of their lived experiences. And when there's different lived experiences, this can create pretty serious tensions. And we tend to speak more from sort of our emotional part of our brain. So I like to compare this to sort of amygdala-based responses versus more frontal lobe-based responses. I'm not a cognitive scientist. I have no clue what I'm talking about. But that said, from my very you know, limited understanding, the amygdala-based responses are the things you have immediately, the knee-jerk reaction to things where it's like the fight or flight response. Whereas the, the frontal lobe uh, kind of you know, higher level thinking Uh, comes a little bit after that. And when we're talking about ethics and values, it tends to very much be amygdala driven. Um, So, you know, when you're learning how to do anger management, for example, they tell you to take a step back, you know, count to 10, these kinds of things. And that's to move the way you feel about it from this initial fight or flight to the more frontal lobe sort of way of thinking. Um, And so I find very much that that ethical discussions are in that fight or flight kind of mindset. And that really makes it difficult. Um, And without recognizing that, I think we just, you know, continue to hit walls because we're not going to agree and we're going to feel bad. 
<laughs> very personally bad. Um, and so without making a safe space and recognizing how personal these sort of discussions are, it really is hard to get to any kind of agreements. And your question about whose ethics, you're probably sort of leading to this. I think you're probably thinking this too. There isn't one ethics, right? And so it's all about the different kinds of values you're trading off. So ethical AI isn't about establishing one set of values. It's about taking the values of your organization and applying those. So the question of whose ethics it's the business's values. It's the business's ethics. And you can see different prioritizations of values as being business differentiators. You know, so Hugging Face cares a lot about transparency. Everything is open source. I'd say maybe Google uh, or Salesforce uh, cares maybe more about democratization. Uh, so making things available to as many users as possible. These are different values that organizations hold and will prioritize differently based on, on their business model. Um, so the whose ethics question is tied up in emotion, I think, and a little bit disconnected from how ethical and responsible AI thinking is applied in the context of different, different organizations and, and businesses. Thank you so much for that really thoughtful breakdown of this distinction between responsible and ethical AI, which are often used interchangeably um, for a variety of reasons, in part because they do distinguish it from all the AI that is not those two, but it's really helpful right. and important to think about uh, what we're aiming for. And I thought you did such a beautiful job of breaking down what the different end goal is. Also gave us a glimpse into the challenging, I'm sure rewarding, but um, probably at times uh, really a, a hard work that you're doing um, when talking about ethical AI. Um, you're solving the problems that have not been solved for centuries in terms of how we treat each other through humanity, how we think about each other, how we define ethical yeah. standards. It just seems in this area there are no shortage of challenges while the consequences could not be more important. The stakes are so high. And yeah. I'm wondering, as you think about all the different elements that you have to contend with with ethical AI, starting with the fact that most companies are not yet in the place where they even realize it's an issue they have to tackle, whether it's because yeah. they don't realize they're an AI company now using AI in pivotal ways, or they don't think of, of this as an issue that they need to take on, not thinking about the end user uh, or other impacts of their AI let alone defining these standards. There's so many ways we could look at this. What do you think is one of the greatest impediments to achieving ethical AI? That's a great question and also something I've discussed with Kathy before when we were on the sort of panel together. Um, this is a bit of a cynical answer, but I think one of the greatest impediments is buy-in from the CEOs. So, you know, when you're working within a corporation, you are, you know, ultimately limited by your management chain. And if you don't have deep understanding up your management chain about what you're doing and the nuances in what you're doing, then you can hit really problematic walls where values are not being considered, um, but the shareholders are, right? So you have one value that is quarterly based, uh, maybe more short-term based, outweighing everything else. And with the power dynamics, you often can't even explain, right? And so that's a bit of what happened 
uh, near the end of my tenure at Google is that, you know, we were, me and my colleague, Tanika Brew, were trying so hard to say, no, listen to what we're saying. There's a larger picture here. This is what ethical AI is. These are, you know, notions of due diligence that we have to do. This ties into upcoming regulation. This matters to the business. Uh, but if there isn't that openness to discussion, then you're in a position where a lot of companies that were started you know, early 2000s or before weren't really grounded in ethical thinking, right? This is something that's relatively new in AI. And so the people sort of at the top see it as maybe an add-on. It's not really fundamental to the way of approaching the company and it's not the way the company has worked um, historically. Um, and that really, you know, in my experience has been the biggest barrier. You know, you have to be able to communicate upwards to update and modernize the way of thinking about AI. And oftentimes that communication is just blocked and there isn't buy-in at the top. And then there's sort of nothing you can do uh, other than get people angry at you at the top, which is not where you want to be. And I think Salesforce, uh, I think Kathy spoke about this at the panel we were on. Salesforce does tend to have really nice buy-in and that might be because it's a newer company. Um, and that's enabled Kathy to integrate ethics into a lot of, or maybe responsible AI. Uh, into a lot of Salesforce's processes where I think uh, maybe older companies haven't been able to do that. In your LinkedIn profile, one of the things that you've talked about is um, uh, uh, in, in your TED Talk in particular is how AI can help humans not hurt us. So following on to what you've, you've just been talking about with executives and being able to create that culture um, and the incentive structure and everything where you can actually bake this in and it's not just an, an add-on, it actually is foundational. How can you tell us more about what this means to you and, and how companies should be doing this? How can they create this foundation of creating AI that helps humans yeah. not hurt yeah. them? Yeah, I think this really comes down to uh, what's centered um, and ideas around what's augmentative and assistive versus what replaces people, right? So when you center humans, when you center people, you're in a relatively good position to understand human values and incorporate human values because they're at the center of the discussion. When you center development of technology for the sake of developing technology, uh, in the hope of replacing humans, actually, then you start to be completely divorced from values and moving forward AI in a way that over the longer term can go down entirely the wrong paths, entirely divorced from fundamental human values. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the work in ethical AI uh, has to do with whose voices are centered. And I would say that centering humans, people, those affected, uh, tends to lead down paths where the technology is more augmentative and assistive um, and really driven by uh, personal needs, uh, as opposed to centering the technology where, you know, humans are sort of, they're, they're neither here nor there, you know, they'll, they'll maybe be replaced. And now you're in situations where you have something that isn't grounded in human morality and values, making very serious decisions that can really negatively affect people's lives um, and, you know, replace replace people where they really should be there. 
um, I think face recognition in schools is a great example of that. <laughs> you don't need a face recognition in a school if you have a person who knows the students, right? Uh, but, you know, that sort of reflects the difference in centering between people and technology. And you've mentioned that this is a focus at Hugging Face, where you are now currently putting your time and energy. Please tell us a little bit about the company. What has your role been? What is the need that Hugging Face is filling? Tell us the origin of the name. What should we expect to see coming from Hugging Face and from you in that respect? The company was interesting to me um, sort of from when it started because a lot of my computer science work has been in natural language processing. Um, and Hugging Face uh, began emerging as a place where people who are publishing in natural language processing can upload their models, upload their code, upload their data. So a storehouse for a lot of different natural language processing work that made it really easy to do things like uh, try and reproduce results, uh, try and examine uh do further examination of work that was being published. You're really opening up uh, the discussion around natural language processing technology to tons of different people from tons of different backgrounds. Um, so that was really fascinating and appealing to me. Um, it, uh, the company itself, as I learned more about it, was very much grounded on ideas of transparency and collaboration. So that's this open source idea. We're going to openly share the kinds of stuff we're working on, um, and we're going to do it in a collaborative way where, you know, very directly, it, you know, in terms of the computer science, that means we're using uh, versioning where we can do pull requests and examine one another's code and, you know, make changes and comment on it and, you know, help improve it in various ways. So it's so collaboration and transparency is fundamental to the company. Uh, so that really appealed to me. Uh, the Hugging Face name um, I thought was hilarious. Uh, I'm someone who doesn't take herself too seriously, like to a fault. That can actually very much annoy people. Um, presumably it can annoy uh, top level investors or something like that, uh, depending on the company. Uh, but Hugging Face, naming itself Hugging Face, which is which is the emoji that, that looks like this, the face with the little hands. Um, and, you know, my first response to the name was, oh, that's what that emoji is called. <laughs> I think that was a lot of people's <laughs> response. <laughs> oh, that's what that emoji is called. Um, and it just really reflected a not taking yourself too seriously kind of mode of thinking that really aligned with the way I tend to work as well. Uh, so that was that was really appealing to me. So that's a bit about the company and the name. In terms of my role, uh, they kindly let me join and do whatever I wanted. And so one of the things I decided I wanted really early on was not to take a kind of leadership role where I would have to be in meetings all day. You know, it's interesting that this happens, but you train as a computer scientist, you become great at coding, you love coding, and then as you succeed, you no longer get to code. <laughs> and it's just kind of the opposite of, of what I think a lot of people want, but we get so used to these upward trajectories that we sort of lose track of what makes us the most happy. Um, and so I had, you know, learned uh, at Google setting up the fairness efforts that I was most miserable when I was in meetings all day. 
uh, and happiest in those small bits of times where I could get to code. So as I joined and talked to them about what my position would be, I made it clear and you know we all agreed that I would be able to join and just code. <laughs> don't worry about my title, don't worry about specifically what I was trying to do. Like I had things I wanted to build, I could just do that. Um, so I really joined as an engineer essentially, which is exactly what I wanted. Um, as I started uh, releasing things, I joined more and more into the discussion of um, our larger ethical protocols. You know, because it's a startup, it doesn't yet have uh, formalized ways of interviewing, performance reviews, promotions, all these fundamental cultural things that set up the incentive structures at the company, uh, where the incentive structures further propagate the culture. Um, so I really wanted to engage in what those kinds of processes and protocols look like um, and establishing what Hugging Faces values are a bit more concretely and then how to operationalize those. Um, so those are the kinds of things I've been involved in. You know, I think I started in November. So I would say, you know, I was really engaging in that sort of stuff by end of December. I got my just coding. <laughs> I need to just code uh, moments uh, out a bit. You know, I, I felt a little bit more ready to have regular meetings after that. Um, and so I'm still nicely in a position where it's totally up to me what I can do. Uh, the founders include me in tons of things. Um, I don't really have an official title. We've gone back and forth with different kinds of titles. You know, researcher at large was something I was saying for a while. But um, I would say that my role is, is a mix now of defining upcoming products, coding on those projects, and doing the work on all the different processes that have to do with establishing culture um, in a way to try and make sure that the culture is an inclusive one um, that has a reasonable amount of diversity and centers human values. I absolutely love all of that. And I completely can can empathize with everything that you said, having you know, in a previous life, managed a very large team, just that hunger to get back to being an individual yeah. contributor and yeah. doing that creation. And it's just so fulfilling and going to a startup where you get to have yeah, so exactly. much influence on yeah. setting that foundation. As you were talking about earlier with the company culture and having that foundation. Yeah. So these kind of considerations aren't add-ons. These This isn't tacked on much later on. You are building it into the foundation yeah. of the company. And that's just such an incredible and critical piece of work for you to, to do. Is there other work that you are doing um, in addition to your role at Hugging Face? Any other projects that you have underway that you want to tell people about that you're, you're really having a great time with and, and want to share? Right. So I guess one thing that's relevant to that outside of Hugging Face is that I'm starting to teach. Uh, so I have position at the University of Washington, which is very close to where I am uh, and also has a lot of really great computer science, AI kind of work. Um, so I'm getting to teach a class there. I don't know if that's something that's interesting to the rest of the world, but it's definitely another kind of project that I'm involved with uh, outside of Hugging Face. It's my first time teaching, so it's been really great to figure out 
how do I take my experience from the past few years and turn this into something that is interesting and understandable and hopefully transformative to what students are learning about AI right now? Um, and, you know, it feels a little bit like cheating because I essentially take things that I'm interested in, give it to students to talk about, think about, and they come back at me with amazing insights. So they're teaching me. So I'm realizing more and more that if you get to teach graduate classes, that it's sort of maybe mutually beneficial. I feel like maybe I'm benefiting more than them. Uh, you know, it's sort of easy to talk about what you've done, uh, but much harder to figure out what other people would be thinking. So, so that's something that I've really been enjoying. And then that plugs into also work at Hugging Face on education. So there's throughout its development, Hugging Face has created like courses and tutorials and things like that around what's happening. And so a lot of the work I'm doing now on how to teach this kind of stuff to grad students plugs into work I can hopefully do more of on publicly disseminated, you know, available at large sort of tutorials and, and classes and things like that. Um, so that's, I guess that's one sort of project or thread of projects uh, that's relevant. You know, I'm also involved with various, various consulting for various government agencies and private companies, uh, things like that. So that's really fun. You know, you can see what companies need. Uh, and then you can also talk to politicians and regulators about how this maps to what's possible, you know, what they're in, what the regulators are interested in and what's actually possible where the rubber meets the road in companies in a way that won't hamper in problematic ways innovation. Um, so that's, I guess, not really a project, but maybe like a way of being. Um, so I'm <laughs> not sure if that's interesting to people either, uh, but I am someone behind the scenes shaping things. So maybe that's good to know, you know, don't mess with me. <laughs> uh, something like that. <laughs> Very good to know. We are, we're duly warned. Um, we'd love to hear about some of what, what are you telling regulators and what are you telling your students? I realize that's a large question, but you have yeah. so much experience working at tech titans, Google and Microsoft, and now you're working with a, a startup, which I'm sure um, benefits from your past experience in so many ways, but has different perspectives. We would love to hear some of the lessons learned that we all should benefit from in terms of uh, how that past experience in big tech has influenced yeah. your perspective uh, and, and the work you do now, as well as anything else you'd like to share with us about what you think regulators and policymakers should understand from your experience yeah. and perspective. Yeah. Oh, oh, I have so much to say there. It's, how much time do we have? <laughs> Go on for <laughs> over an hour on this. We're listening. So at this. Yeah. <laughs> so at the state level, um, I've been. Uh, somewhat helping working with that, you know, this is work that people who do this full time are really doing, but, you know, adding you know, my two cents uh, to legislation that has to do with inclusion and inclusion in tech companies. Um, so this is uh, a function of my own experiences, as well as the way that I'd like AI to involve to 
the way that I'd like AI to evolve, uh, which is an inclusive way, bringing lots of people to the table. Um, so the legislation I've been working on um, locally at the state level um, in Washington has to do with things like NDA clauses, being able to talk about discrimination and harassment, um, being able to move away from models where your only option at a tech company is to see a therapist who then reports what you say to the company. You know, there's all these problematic things embedded in current corporations that lead to very exclusionary practices, disproportionately harming women, people of color. And so I've been trying to help with legislation that, that touches on that in various ways. So, so limiting what companies can do in terms of exclusion that disproportionately harm tech minorities, people who are marginalized. Sort of a definition of marginalization is that uh, these groups are regularly being excluded or alienated. Um, so working on this kind of inclusion-related uh, legislation for companies. Um, at, the, at the federal level, um, it has a lot more to do with what's called algorithmic accountability. Um, and so uh, some of the research work I've done has been grounded in this idea that regulation is coming. And in order to do regulation of AI well, we need to have a bridge between how AI development works within companies and what politicians are trying to do. Because um, you can end up in situations where policy is put forward uh, by, by regulators um, sort of uh, achieve the opposite of what they're trying to achieve, right? So naively, you might say something like, uh, you can't process anything about gender because we're trying to protect gender in some way. But it turns out that if you want to prove that an algorithm doesn't discriminate across genders, you need to model gender in some way. Uh, so you can oftentimes understand the spirit of, of what regulators are trying to do, uh, but without being grounded in the specifics of how the, uh, how the machine learning is actually working, um, it can be, you know, a problematic uh, set of regulatory proposals. Um, so I've been working on trying to sort of bridge that gap, putting forward sort of documentation practices um, and the kinds of things that can speak to regulatory ideas, such as showing robustness, such as showing non-discrimination, uh, such as showing sourcing and, and provenance of where things are coming from and connecting that to what can companies actually do in more of a self-regulatory way uh, to meet those higher level, those higher level goals. Um, so I really see and I'm working towards a future where there's some amount of self-regulation within companies meeting higher level higher level regulation that has more to do with the fundamental values um, that, you know, regulators are interested in, in the public uh, being able to have access to and values that would protect the public. So that's more the algorithmic accountability. It goes to things like auditing practices. What are we, what are we asking for and what should we report? Um, so, so that kind of work, the algorithmic accountability sort of work is, is, federal federal level, country level uh, type, type legislation. 
I love all of that. As you were talking, I'm just screaming in my head, yes, yes. Like they're, they're, It's so critical to have this public-private collaboration because yeah. we can see good intentions uh, behind yeah. the regulations. Um, yeah. But if you aren't working in a field where you're actually trying to, to build or implement the, the AI, um, you could unintentionally create more harm than, than yeah. good. There was a, a research paper that was published that said um, you can't optimize fairness and accuracy and robustness and explainability, but you know some regulation requires all of those. And so right. um, having that nuance and being understand, yeah. being able to understand how do I actually implement this in practice? So um, can you talk about what are some steps or things that engineers and developers and, and people working in AI can do to help figure out how do we ensure that we are actually implementing this in in a fair way? Um, and yeah. you talked about documentation. So, of course, yeah. model cards being such an amazing part of that. Um, so how, how would you do that? Um, and yeah. uh, do you have thoughts about uh, concerns? people may have of admitting that there may be bias, like documenting known bias in those yeah. model cards, even though we know you can never have 100% yeah. bias-free data sets and models, yeah. like yeah. admitting that you have some yeah. bias, like that can seem very scary, especially to lawyers. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. And I have very direct experience, but as I'm sure you do as well. Let me take a step back to actually start answering your question. So I think in your question, you're already basically saying what I would say, which is that I think documented, documenting things uh, is key to helping engineers and developers figure out how to speak to the kinds of things that uh, regulators would be interested in. Um, when we document things, we can trace decisions throughout the process. Now, this relates directly to auditing. So there's these ideas around auditing algorithmic systems and how you begin to audit algorithmic systems is by having uh, essentially artifacts across each uh, process that goes into development that can be examined. Um, and so these artifacts are often things like uh, design documents, um, as well as decisions that are made about what kinds of aspects to focus on. And that's everything from what decision thresholds are we using um, to whether or not we are going to uh, build a happiness classifier versus a smile classifier. By being able to create artifacts about you know, this whole process, then we really can open our eyes to um, all the different assumptions that are going into the development, what should maybe be improved, what should be revisited, um, and what's working well. Um, so, you know, documentation is really key throughout. Artifacts like, like documents are really key um, or else easily reproducible code. So one thing that, that people do in a bunch of companies is use collaborative notebooks where you can easily see comments on what's happening and then run it yourself. You know, this is another kind of artifact that can come out of these processes um, that, are, that are really important to be able to understand all the things at play 
uh, relevant to the public and, and legislators and things like that. But you're absolutely right that that means there's going to be concerns about what people will be able to see, right? And this is in part because we don't have a lot of established case law in things like discrimination with algorithms. So if we show that our facial detection system works better for white men than black women, are we now up against discrimination law? And it's hard for any company to be the first to do that because they're opening up themselves to be the first to be sued for it. Um, and so I think it's something that a lot of companies want to do. And everybody knows you're not going to have parity across, you know, all different kinds of demographics. You that's I can, you know, you can explain why, I can explain why. Uh, but but the punchline is there's no such thing really as as equal performance across all different sort of characteristics. Um, Yet, uh, if we don't have case law around how to handle that, then we are, we're working with previous case law that isn't within the machine learning realm um, that, can, that can really be harmful to a company along the lines of propagating discriminatory systems. Um, and so it is a, it is a huge concern. Um, and there's a few things I can say to that. One is that this is why it's so important to work with regu regulators um, in order to make these kinds of things clear, right? If we want companies to be transparent and to provide all this documentation and to self-regulate in reasonable ways, then we need to give a little bit of leeway uh, in punishing them for things because you will find things that following previous law should maybe be punishable, but in the case of AI development, really just means people are going to hide things because it's just not possible to meet some of these goals. Um, but I'll also say that having to document and be transparent about things like bias incentivizes work that really addresses biases. So you're a lot less likely to put out a system that has really strong disparate performance across something like um, uh, white men and black women um, if you have to be transparent about it. So that means maybe you won't release it as quickly and instead work on really addressing that disparate performance as its own you know, module within the process before releasing it. So transparency and documentation, I think really incentivizes good practices towards you know, more responsible AI. Um, and so uh, maybe a double-edged sword, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I might use that metaphor incorrectly, but, <laughs> but it's it's a good and a bad, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's it creates harm if you have to show something is biased or it potentially can create harm for the company. But on the other hand, that means that the company now works all the all the much more on that, um, which can really lead to more positive outcomes. Like AI itself, it can be a powerful equalizing tool for inclusivity and, and more mm -hmm. benefits to more people. It could also be weaponized or exclusive. Mm -hmm. And uh, so point well taken. I really would love to ask you more about your thoughts on the law as a lawyer in this space. But unfortunately, oh. I realize we need to bring this conversation to a close, which I really don't want to do. And so um, we'll ask you the question we ask all of our guests if you were able to step out of the reality that you are so grounded in and focused on every day and you are able to have a magic wand achieve one wish uh, for achieving ethical or responsible AI, what's that one thing you would wish for? This might be a boring answer because I've sort of said it throughout, uh, but I think inclusion is the fundamental issue. 
we can solve a lot of problems that we're seeing with AI, AI now if we have diverse people at the table, people who are most familiar with uh, groups that will be affected and be affected ne negatively, um, and having those people feel comfortable talking, right? So that's the inclusion part of diversity and inclusion. It's not enough to have a bunch of different people. Those people have to feel like they belong, that their ideas are valued. They need to feel comfortable speaking up. Um, and so this inclusion part is really, really key, has so many uh, more positive downstream effects. Um, and I think it's important to note that inclusion is not something you tack on to current processes so much as something that um, you need to address in terms of minimizing exclusion. So a fundamental issue, uh, this is not stepping out of my role, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I'll just say a fundamental issue in uh, developing AI systems are is exclusionary practices. We're not going to invite this person to the meeting. Um, you know, we find them annoying or whatever. We're not going to add this person to the email uh, because we, you know, think maybe they don't, they're not as relevant. Um, exclusionary practices are fundamental in AI development. So by stopping exclusion, right, you get to inclusion. Uh, so it's not something you tack on. I mean, it can be, right? But it's, it's also something that you create by stopping <laughs> and, and minimizing uh, current problematic pro processes of exclusion. Err on the side of inclusion when you're making decisions about who to include and who not to include. That's, that's my general rule of thumb. Cheers to that. Thank you so much, Dr. Mitchell, for taking the time to talk with us today. And thank yeah. you for all the important work you're doing in this space. Thank, thank you. you. Thank so you so much. much for having me. Well, Kathy, as we expected, that was a tremendous interview. Dr. Mitchell gave us so much to think about and discuss and learn from. What were some of the big takeaways for you? Yeah, well, I, I hated to end it at all. I, I think we could have gone on for uh, for easily a couple more hours, and I still would have had questions and things that I would have wanted to discuss with her. But I, I really loved the the discussion we had about the difference between ethical AI and responsible AI. That really has has seemed to be almost like a third rail or like this is a, this is a real bone of contention among a lot of a lot of folks and talking about these visceral responses that people have when we start talking about ethics and values and how we really as practitioners we have to make sure that we are working to de-escalate these conversations and how we approach them, that it's not about passing uh, value judgments on each other, but we're truly here to learn from each other uh, and create these collaborative experiences. Uh, and and I, I think that was that was one of my favorite parts of our of our conversation. I, I so agree. I thought it was um, it, her approach to talking about responsible versus ethical AI. It was so clear that she respects both and she understands both so well. And it was really important to her that we understand the nuances and the end goal and how they're different. And uh, so I was I think it was really helpful to hear her her thoughtful perspective uh, on that. 
Uh, I was encouraged by the fact that she did not start in computer science officially until she was 22. So, you know, I hear so many young girls who in high school don't want to take robotics because there are others in their class, mostly boys, who have been doing it for so much longer um, and then don't feel prepared for the computer science classes because they haven't been doing robotics and think they're doomed. Well, no, one of the leaders uh, started when she was 22. And, and you know, I, I, well, I'm sure we'll talk to others who have started various stages of their career. So I thought that was really great to hear. Um, and I thought that she also gave so much thought as to the organization that, that you're supporting, um, the older versus the newer organization and different challenges that that's going to bring when you're talking about ethical and responsible AI. Um, and the artifacts that she has helped create um, to document what it is that you're building and creating and just really breaking down the thought behind the model cards and some of the other seminal uh, discoveries, uh, creations that she has put into the world that help us think about how to approach this huge topic in a very practical and approachable way, in a way that not just engineers and computer scientists who need, deserve, and support support from all of us and, and, and from those who are thinking about the very practical methods, but, but it invites all of us to participate in the process and understand what is baked into our AI, what is it being tested for, who is not represented, and then let's plan accordingly. Yeah, these tools enable all of us who come after to stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, we're not having to recreate the wheel. We're not having to figure out all of the really hard lessons uh, that, that they have learned. And I love our community. It is an incredibly diverse community in the uh, ethical or responsible AI field. Uh, we have... Um, um, uh, so many people of different backgrounds, non-binary, um, multiple races, and this is what makes our practice stronger. And it's not about competitive differentiators. It's not about, I'm going to hide this information because it gives us an advantage over you. It's, I'm going to share these tools. I'm going to share uh, our research because everybody wants society to be better. And so the quicker we all improve our processes and our practices, the better it is for all of society. And so Yes, this is, I, I am as well so grateful for all of the artifacts and research uh, that she shared so that we can continue building on her work. Yeah, and, and the final piece of the discussion that really is resonating and sticking with me is that she's brought up this theme that seems consistent among the different leaders we've spoken to. Uh, and I know with your experience as well, that you cannot divorce AI and innovation from that which it's being created and used. The culture in which it is being created it permeates. It's like through osmosis, it's like a cell, but it's, it's so interesting to think AI, which we think of as data and new numbers and under this black box is yet so uh, permeable uh, and that the, all, the culture surrounding its creation really embeds this, this uh, technical uh, innovation. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the context of how it's used really recreates another whole 
culture and environment. And, um, you know, time and again, we're just hearing that it's hard enough to try and build ethical AI. Um, you can't do it if the culture surrounding it doesn't support it. And then it's lost if you put it into a situation in which it was not built or, or that doesn't support it in the right ways. You know, it's like nurturing this baby that needs to be cared for and protected in the appropriate ways, which is not something I, we normally think of as when we think of AI. Yeah, the so much emphasis has has been put on debiasing models, all of the technical aspects, creating explainable. AI. Um, uh, That's important and we have to have that. But that alone can't can't address these potential risks and harms that we have seen happening. Um, AI creators can have the best of intentions, but if there isn't a strong culture in their organizations, then you are just doomed to create AI that is not representative of everybody, it's not inclusive, and it's going to cause harm. So I I don't think we can emphasize enough the importance of creating a strong culture that enables this work. Yeah, no shortcuts here. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us again. This is such a pleasure. It was such a useful, thought-provoking conversation, and I was so glad to share that with you. Same here. Thank you so very much. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 